You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Caroline, and today we're talking with Greg Smith. Teaching in a Quaker school in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains gave Greg a powerful sense of place, meaning, and community. It drew students into mutual responsibility, social justice, peace, and environmental responsibility. He took that spirit into his PhD studies at the University of Wisconsin, and then into a teaching career at Portland's Lewis and Clark, where he taught envisioning a sustainable society and the theory and practice of the environmental and ecological education. Greg and Tom serve on the advisory committee of the Teton Science Schools, a leader in place-based education. At an April meeting, Tom noticed a new sense of urgency about climate change in Greg's advice. When he inquired, Greg said that he had been part of a climate change study group for several years and that a growing number of books said the situation is far worse than people think. In addition to climate change, Greg compiled a list of seven important books and papers that he reviews with Tom in this podcast. Let's listen in as they discuss his background, climate change, and these seven important books and papers. Greg Smith, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Greg, I, I've been looking forward to doing this for a couple of years. We served together on the Teton Science School's uh, advisory board, and I've, I've always appreciated your input there. Thanks. Um, it, I, I heard that it was uh, a Quaker school that you taught at in California that really set you down this course of, of really appreciating the power of place. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The the school was called the John Woolman School. It was outside of Nevada City in uh, in California, and my wife and I taught there for about six years. But uh, the school had uh, only about sixty to sixty five students every year. We lived on about three hundred acres uh, in the foothills of the of the Sierra Nevadas, and uh, I found that students who hadn't really believed that uh, community was possible anymore, found themselves drawn into a real sense of kind of mutual uh, responsibility to one another and to the land at that place. And I think being a, a Quaker institution with its emphasis on on uh, social justice and social responsibility and, and peace and, and uh, environmental sustainability uh, really kind of helped engender in them a sense of their own uh, kind of responsibility to the rest of the world. And I was really interested in finding ways to bring something similar uh, into public schools. And so after my wife and I left Woolman, I uh, kind of checked around and tried to find graduate schools that would kind of be interested in pursuing uh, uh, that that particular kind of issue and uh, found a really favorable environment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, where I was able to work on my PhD and then, uh, and then subsequently everything that I've done with regard to environmental education and place-based education really grew out of that. Uh, Greg, uh, today we're going to look at some recent uh, books that have come out about climate change um, uh, but I, I thought in particular, as I mentioned, I've known you for a couple of years. It, it seemed like your the tone and tenor, uh, at the last advisory board meeting was a little bit different. Um, it was both a sense of urgency and a focus that we've passed, a, a tipping point, uh, a point where in addition to 
reducing our damage uh, to the climate, we need to begin rapidly making plans for for adaptation, um, given how rapidly it's progressed. Is that a fair assessment of your observation over the last two years? It is. It's a, an observation that has been kind of growing since a, uh, I spent a, a half a year in uh, Australia about four years ago. And I think that's when I really began to be kind of uh, aware of uh, particularly the tipping point with regard to methane in the, in, uh, in the Arctic, both in terms of uh, what's happening with the permafrost, but also the, the frozen methane uh, under the, the, uh, the surface of the of the Arctic Ocean and the the real danger of that uh, melting and its impact that it could have, uh, I think it 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 gave me a sense that there really is a, a a kind of a time limit on all of this in terms of the importance of human beings uh, kind of acting uh, in in a much more dramatic fashion uh, and acting quickly. Um, I've been participating in a kind of a breakfast uh, climate change study group for the last year and a half. And so we'd been meeting with uh, a number of, of different organizations and people uh, in the city just to inform ourselves about uh, climate change policy. And I've been fortunate that, that a number of the people in that group are, are uh, policy experts. And we've been able to invite people in who are really familiar with, with what's going on. And so I think I, I really began uh, dipping much more into the literature about climate change. And so uh, that immersion over the last year and a half has, has really kind of upped my uh, kind of consciousness of, of the precariousness of our current situation and the need to take, uh, I think, much more dramatic action than humanity has kind of en- envisioned at this point. Uh, let's dive in. The first book on your list is The Uninhabitable Earth, uh, David Wallace-Wells. This is a new book that just came out in in February, and Wells is a fellow at the New American Foundation. He's a, also an editor at the New York Magazine, and he echoes your sentiment and says it's worse, much worse than you think. Well, what would you add uh, about the Wells book? Well, I'd say that the Wells book is really fascinating in that it doesn't so much kind of look at uh, all of the information that's happening about you know the factors that are leading to climate change, he really kind of focuses on impacts on and and human impacts in terms of of uh, uh, the impact of higher temperatures on on human health on on the spread of uh, tropical diseases on flooding on fires on in, in with regard to air pollution uh, and and really kind of looks at at how climate change really has the the potentiality of really destabilizing human societies, leading to much more conflict, uh, a, a lot more poverty, uh, its economic consequences, and 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 in some respects, it seems like he's really tie, trying to 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 tell a, a horror story in an effort to scare us enough to get us to to take action. It's it's a little like uh, Greta Thunberg, the the uh, right. Swedish student who basically kind of went to Davos uh, and said, "You know, the world is on fire. We don't need your hope. We need you to uh, to to act and act now." And and I think that that's a lot of where Wallace is Wells, uh, Wallace Wells is coming from. Uh, he uh, I, I think is is actually pretty positive about the possibility of human beings. Uh, uh, ability to actually take action to try to uh, uh, curtail 
the, the consequences of warming, uh, believing that since we were the ones who caused it, we should be able to stop it, uh, unlike just a, a natural disaster. This is something that, that we can actually deal with. Like if we you know, really stop using fossil fuels, if we, if we eat differently, if we uh, 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 really put in the money needed to create alternative energy systems, we'll be able to kind of deal with this. Uh, and so in, in some respects, I think he's, he's pretty positive about our capacity to actually deal with this, this particular issue. So the book is really scary, but I think his intent is to wake us up and say, hey, get busy, folks. Uh, we need to do something and do it right now. Uh, another scary summary is uh, rising dispatches from the New American Shore. This is uh, another... Um, Journalist, I guess Rush, uh, Elizabeth Rush is a teacher at Brown. Um, so th this is one of her first um, ventures into climate, but um, she takes an interesting approach by taking kind of a lap around the, the country looking at the impact in shoreline communities. And I, I really liked uh, her focus on uh, the experience of individual people. Uh, she really got to know folks in these different places that she visited in Maine or in Louisiana or in Florida and, uh, and told their stories, got into their lives and really kind of looked at what, what uh, a, a changing climate and rising uh, ocean was going to mean for them. Uh, in, a, in a very direct and very personal way. And I, I think uh, Rush doesn't come across nearly as, uh, 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 as, as nearly a frightening uh, writer as, as Wallace Wells, uh, but she, she clearly looks at like the, the impact that, that rising sea level is going to have on a variety of people. And I, I appreciated the way in which she kind of lays out some particular policies, strategies that really ought to be adopted, kind of looking at the, the National Flood Insurance Program and saying, you know, instead of uh, really requiring people to rebuild or repair their homes on areas that have been flooded, which is the normal process, uh, we need to really kind of look at some areas as basically not going to be inhabitable uh, going into the future. And instead of basically uh, you know, requiring people to e either rebuild in places where uh, conditions are, are just going to worsen uh, or basically lose all of the money that they've invested in that property. We really ought to come up with a way to uh, uh, pay people for the property that they're losing so that they have an opportunity to kind of move to new locations where they're not going to face the same kind of problem. And I think that that kind of empathy in terms of looking at the consequences, especially for folks who are lower income and are often the people who've been forced to live in former wetlands or close to, uh, close to the shore, uh, that that our society really has an obligation to finding ways to make uh, those kinds of of uh, transitions uh, and and a migration away from from land that is really kind of jeopardized by flooding uh, makes a huge amount of sense to me and I think that that kind of empathy needs to become much more widespread as we encounter the kinds of challenges that are likely to happen in the coming decades. I found this one uh, disturbing since I live on the beach just south of Seattle. And we currently, when we have the combination of a big fall 
tide and wind, um, it knocks out my my dock. And um, the the thought that um, this is going to be a couple of feet higher um, in, in the not too distant future is disturbing uh, to me as it uh, as it is to people that live on or near coasts all over the country. Dar Jamal, uh, another journalist that looked at the uh, the end of ice. Uh, Why did you add that one to your list? Uh, I've read Dar Jamal's uh, uh, kind of post to the uh, online journal Truthout for the last couple of years, right. and I found his his uh, writing just to be incredibly uh, comprehensive in terms of the the range of scientific information that he's able to pull together on those uh, on those posts. And uh, and so I was very interested in seeing like what he had to say, and and I think uh, I think Jamal's uh, vision of what's going to happen is bleaker than almost anybody else's. I I don't think that he feels like Wallace Wells or like Rush that uh, there's really a way out of this, and that to some extent I suspect that he believes that we are really past uh, the 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 tipping point, particularly with regard to the methane emissions from the Arctic, and that the consequence there is going to be really grave, both for uh, kind of industrial civilization as we know it, but perhaps even uh, for the survivable uh, survivability of our, our species. And so what he comes down to believing and kind of urging people to do is find ways to kind of give them that understanding, uh, come together in community, uh, support one another, uh, find ways to really uh, kind of go through uh, what is likely to be a very difficult set of experiences uh, in a in a manner that kind of allows human beings to uh, to bring their best selves forward rather than to uh, 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 fall into despair uh, and fall into fear and 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 anger and and potential violence and and so uh, it's it's a vision that uh, a growing number of people seem to be uh, articulating now. There's a guy named uh, Jim Bendel in in. Uh, England, who's talked about, who's talking about what he calls deep adaptation, and and these folks are are really saying that we've really got to uh, uh, embrace the possibility that we're not going to get out of this mess, uh, and that we've got to figure out how to do so in the most humane and caring uh, way that we possibly can to kind of maintain uh, our decency and our humanity in the midst of this kind of crisis, but. Uh, Jamail's book is really powerful, I think, in part because he really draws upon his own experiences uh, as a mountain climber and and uh, this kind of deep love that he has for for the natural environment and looking at the changes that he's been able to witness in in places like the slopes of Denali up in Alaska or uh, diving in the in the Great Barrier Reef uh, in in Australia. So it's. It's a it's a, a powerful report about how you can actually see the consequences of climate change on very specific environments. We, we will include a link to that uh, Jim Bendall paper, uh, Deep Adaptation, and his uh, widely viewed YouTube as well. Um, that one is really a bummer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he, he really, but he has moved on into... Uh, thinking deeply about uh, adaptation uh, because he's so convinced that 
that collapse is um, inevitable. And by collapse, he means an uneven ending of our current means of sustenance, shelter, security, entertainment, and identity. So um, deep sort of rolling uh, crises that uh, uh, impact civilization at a pretty fundamental level. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Venezuela uh, spreading uh, from South America to, to every continent. Is, it's kind of the vision that I take from his, uh, his particular analysis. Um, next, we're going to go to uh, a slightly more hopeful take. Uh, it's called The Archipelago of Hope. And it's a book that um, that really looks to indigenous cultures and their lands uh, for clues on on how to deal with climate change. Yeah, uh, it's written by a guy named uh, Gleb Rigordetsky, uh, who kind of grew up in uh, Kamchatka, uh, the uh, peninsula in kind of northeastern Russia. Uh, his father had kind of moved there to get as far away from Moscow as he could, and then moved even further away. Uh, it, I think he'd been initially in Petropavlovsk, the capital city, and then lived in a, a rural community. And so his son, Gleb, was able to kind of really become familiar with uh, indigenous ways of life, as well as the experience of, of rural Russians kind of living off the land. And he brought that experience uh, into his work as a, as a wildlife biologist working on ethnobotany. And, and he found himself attending a lot of conferences where people were talking about uh, the kind of traditional ecological knowledge uh, shared by indigenous peoples around the globe and was disturbed that very few uh, indigenous people actually were at these conferences and started inviting them uh, to these events and encouraging other people to do so as well and then decided to kind of uh, do an odyssey himself around the world, going to a number of different communities, like in Finland, uh, northern Russia, central Russia with the Altair people, uh, in Thailand with uh, traditional agricultural uh, hill tribes, uh, and in 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 uh, Ecuador, uh, visiting folks who's, uh, who maintain their lives as traditional kind of hunter and gatherers. And and one of the things that really struck me in this particular book was the way in which he uh, was really impressed by the resilience of of these uh, these peoples who had basically been surviving in the same places for for millennia, and their uh, their confidence about their capacity to roll with the punches, <laughs> if they'd had a chance to, since they'd been able to kind of survive the consequences of colonization and oil exploration and a variety of other kinds of assaults to their land, uh, they believed that they would probably be able to continue uh, surviving in the face of uh, climate change as well. And he felt that there were a, a couple of things that was really important for folks uh, in the industrialized world to learn from these people. And the first was that uh, nothing stays stable. Everything is always changing. And it's something that they had just learned to live with over the long periods of time that they'd lived in these places. And then the second thing that they had learned was that it was really imperative 
that people understand that they are part of nature and that we are absolutely interdependent upon the natural world. We do not stand above it and that we have got to figure out how to live in harmony with the natural world or uh, we'll suffer the consequences. And uh, I think his feeling was that there's much to be learned from these folks. Uh, I think that the other thing that I, I realized from reading this particular book is that, you know, some some writers are kind of looking at the possibility of the extinction of our species. Uh, and I look at these folks who have lived in these indigenous communities for so long. And I, I think that that's where uh, I, I get the hope from uh, uh, Ray Gordetsky's book, that, that human beings with those capacities are likely to, uh, to be able to make it through just because they've made it so th- through so many things before. Uh, Greg, we could... Add to the list, uh, Bill McKibben's book. He was a guy that offered one of the earliest climate warnings, and um, he's out with a new book called Falter that sort of broadens his older message that the human game may be beginning to uh, play itself out. So we'll go both read that one. Right, right, yes. And then finally on your list was uh, Drawdown. Um, this might be ending on a on a high note, or I, this is probably the most optimistic one on your list. Uh, Paul Hawken edits a really comprehensive plan uh, to reverse global warming. This, we should note, is a couple years older. Most of these other books were um, books by authors very recently. Uh, Most of these authors, from a journalistic perspective, uh, Hawken and Drawdown, really cataloged uh, a set of potential um, things that could throw things into reverse. What What's your take on Drawdown? I think one of the things that I appreciated most about Hawken, uh, who really has been, you know, kind of uh, beating the drum about, hey, folks, there are things we can do about this ever since he wrote his book, uh, Blessed Unrest, uh, uh, back in 2007, that kind of talks about the the largest social movement in the history of the planet with its focus on social justice and equity and sustainability. And, and I, I think Hawken is uh, actually does a wonderful job of just saying, you know, that there are things that we can do if we can just, again, get our act together in the, in the way that uh, Wallace Wells says that we must. And I think one of the things that most impressed me about Drawdown was that uh, the scientists and graduate students who helped pull this book together for Hawken uh, really don't focus only on energy systems uh, and the kinds of things that we normally think about with regard to uh, to climate change. Um, so it's not just fossil fuels and reducing fossil fuel use that we need to kind of engage in. So one of the most powerful things that they found uh, in their book that could affect climate change is the education of girls and family planning, just to try to do what we can to, to curtail population growth in the coming years. Uh, another was to uh, to change the the chemicals that we use in in, in uh, air conditioning and refrigeration, so kind of moving away from the hydrofluorocarbons to other substances that that can be used to uh, 
to uh, keep us cool and 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 keep our food cold, uh, and and that those kinds of strategies, like the hydrofluorocarbons, for example, are incredibly powerful uh, uh, greenhouse gases that, if eliminated, would really make a difference. Uh, they also talk about the importance of forest uh, uh, regeneration and and what's called regenerative agriculture that involves basically trying to sequester much more carbon in the soil by doing things like uh, not tilling fields, uh, by planting cover crops, uh, uh, by using rotational planting. Uh, and, and those kinds of strategies could make a huge difference. Uh, and that at issue is not simply kind of uh, adopting alternative energy systems or keeping fossil fuel in the ground, but really embracing a full panoply of different kinds of solutions. I think the challenge for me is figuring out how to actually get governments to act on those kinds of diverse uh, policy uh, dimensions. But uh, I think it would make a, a huge difference if, if more and more people were to realize just the, the, the extraordinary range of different responses that could be enacted to begin dealing with this, this uh, you know, planet-wide crisis. Thanks for that summary. Uh, Chad Frischman has a great TED Talk on Drawdown that many of us have, uh, have watched. And so I, I agree. On, on one hand, it's really a great list of uh, some really practical things, some that we traditionally connect to climate change. And as you noted, others like family planning that we, uh, that we don't. But as you said, the key is how we get government to act. Uh, Greg, uh, on Earth Day, an NPR poll came out, and, and it said that 55% of teachers don't uh, teach or talk about climate change, but almost as many parents um, don't either. But the, the vast majority of parents wish that teachers did talk about it at school. I, I'd love to know, as a, uh, a teacher, a longtime teacher of ecology at, uh, at Lewis and Clark, and, and also a teacher educator, what advice do you have for teachers in schools about how we can better inform young people about the world they're going to inherit? I, it's a tough one in some respects because teachers oftentimes are fearful of uh, of gaining any kind of parent dissatisfaction because of their uh curricular choices and and principles are oftentimes uh, not particularly supportive. I've got a friend in Portland, Tim Swinehart, who's been dealing with climate change issues in his classes for for uh, the last decade or so. And and there have been issues that he's run into with parents complaining about about his choice of curriculum. So it's a it's a it, it, it takes a little bit of guts on the part of teachers to, to really stand up and kind of address these issues. But people are doing it now. And uh, I think Portland's been doing some pretty interesting things. A, a couple of years ago, uh, a resolution was passed by the, the Portland School Board to uh, basically uh, uh, look for texts that ac accurately describe what was happening in with regard to climate change and identify texts that uh, created a, uh, a false impression about what was going on and and that teachers were uh, to be encouraged to actually grapple with these issues in their classes. Not a lot has happened over that period of time. And, and actually a week ago uh, uh, yesterday, uh, 
there was a uh, uh, no excuse actually it was last Thursday there was a uh, a Portland school board meeting 50 kids uh, gave testimony about the need to strengthen climate change education and uh, and it looks as though the board may in fact be going to adopt a, a set of uh, uh, more uh, strenuous uh, uh, proposals from climate justice activists in the in the Portland pool school district I I'd gone to uh, a planning meeting for that particular uh, board meeting uh, three weeks before, and there were probably around 80 to 90 teachers from Portland. So so I think that people are really kind of grappling with it. Um, I also, uh, for the last five or six months, have been working on the development of a curriculum uh, that would be focused on teaching kids in the Portland area uh, about Portland's climate action plan. It's different dimensions, as well as information about nonprofits in the city that are taking steps to really kind of address climate uh, climate change. And the hope is that kids uh, from a variety of different backgrounds, from different perspectives, will see ways that they could potentially plug themselves into it. So even though they might not be interested in being activists uh, uh, and, and and being involved in, in demonstrations, they might be interested in in becoming a windmill uh, technology. Uh, they might be interested in becoming uh, engineers uh, capable of designing and 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 improving uh, electric vehicles. Uh, they might be interested in in installing solar panels, so that that young people will begin to see just the range of different occupations that they could pursue that would allow them to make a a, a significant contribution to reducing. Uh, uh, our our carbon emissions and and actually kind of moving towards the creation of a of a of a carbon neutral world uh, and hopefully a world that will be much more equitable and environmentally sustainable as well. Uh, climate change really is only kind of one of the crises that we're facing at this particular time. We're 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 not only kind of dealing with with carbon emissions uh, in the atmosphere and, and global warming. We're we're uh, kind of uh, acidifying our oceans. Uh, we're overfishing. Uh, we're uh, uh, kind of destroying the quality of our soil, and we're kind of developing an economy that needs people less and less. And so, uh, there are just a range of things that we're going to need to uh, to deal with to uh, to come up with a, a way of life for all people on the planet that is just and and sustainable. And I think uh, uh, really involving kids in opportunities to kind of explore ways that they can contribute to the creation of that new world will be absolutely critical as we move forward in the coming decades. Greg, as we close this out, um, in addition to your sense of urgency, I was struck by by something that you said um, at the last advisory board meeting that you you felt that that this crisis should be responded to in love rather than in fear. Um, t- tell me about that. I think my sense is that uh, it is again kind of drawing on the better angels of our nature. Uh, and that what has really allowed human beings to continue to persist uh, as these weak, comparatively speaking, hairless creatures uh, is that we've been able to form communities. We've been able to live with one another. We've been able to support each other uh, in the midst of the challenges that we face. And that it's, it's our capacity to actually understand our fundamental 
relationship with one another and the way in which our survival really depends upon our ability to cooperate and collaborate and 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 seek to really serve one another that 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 really is what gives me hope for the future that that he, people have been able to kind of draw upon that through all sorts of difficult uh, challenges that our species has faced in the in the past and that we need to really acknowledge that as really fundamental to who we are and that if we're able to do that then i i have much more kind of confidence about our capacity to make it through the coming decades and i think i would otherwise and i think it's it is probably what gave, gave Rigordetsky the hope that he he was able to find in in meeting with the indigenous people that that he spent time with uh, as he was writing his book as he as he saw the quality of their communities and saw the degree to which they really were able to live in 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 community with one another and in harmony with the places where they where they lived. It's a hopeful place to close, um, Greg. I. I've, I've for a long time appreciated your focus on place and introducing young people to the, the both the place they live and and uh, the, the places around the world. Um, we, we appreciate your your life's work and your teaching at Lewis and Clark, but um, but this book study that you've been in um, has really proven to be important to you and now to us and and we hope to a much broader audience so we appreciate your work as a conversation leader and we hope it inspires uh, other teachers and leaders to uh, to lead a conversation in their community thanks tom i i appreciate the opportunity to share with you We love Greg's insightfulness and willingness to think much larger about the issues that are affecting us daily, including climate change and governance. Check out episode 168, where Tom, Emily, and Nate McLennan give you a tour of Teton Science Schools and its important history and environmental education. Thanks for listening today. If you're a fan of the show, please rate and review so others can find us too. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline, signing off.